0: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. Today,
1: we're talking about saving planet Earth with Nature's Voice, featuring Jakku and Serena Vinning. Uh, Nature's Voice is an environmental web series that is just starting up on being broadcast. And, uh, Yaku and, and Serena sent me some, a couple of early films and they're just great. So we're going to be trying to disseminate them outward on their website and on Ocean River Institute's website and, uh, on Voice America. So, uh, on the telephone with me calling from Los Angeles, are Jocko Vinning and Serena Vinning. Hello, Jaco and Serena. Hey, guys. How's it going?
2: Hi. How are you?
1: Hi. I imagine it's as hot in Los Angeles as it is in Cambridge, Massachusetts on this uh, July day. We seem to be having a lot of heat here.
2: Yeah, it's a sunny, hot day, of course, today in Los Angeles, too. It's
1: like every day. Well, unfortunately, because of global warming, we're seeing more and more of these days, and... Uh, but let's, uh, before I get into the content of uh, nature's voice, I'd like to um, ask Serena about, because the film is all about Jaku. There's this telling guy all over the place. And it's very little at the very end, it says you know, all the film work and customs and everything else is done by Serena. So you guys are a phenomenal team, the way you pull us together. Now, I understand you first met Jaku while you were part of a film crew shooting a short western film in Fiddletown, California?
2: Yeah, actually I was in charge of the costumes. Um, yeah. I went to school for design and fashion. So I was I just graduated from Ohio State and my cousin asked me to do costumes for a short film. And Yaku was in this tiny town with about like a hundred people. It's called Fiddletown in Northern California and he was making wine there and we just met one night.
1: <laughs> and the rest is history, eh?
2: Yeah. And then after that, well, I didn't think we would talk again, but we just became Facebook friends and um I was actually diagnosed with cancer. So, I didn't even think I was going to make it to the film because I had to go back and do treatments, but um randomly I posted something saying I had to do a surgery or a treatment and he sent me this long message explaining like what's going on, are you okay? And I haven't heard from him since the day we saw each other and he asked uh, if he could send me something so he sent me a little card and a necklace and it just took me back and we started talking and we really like, connected and the is history. <laughs> no, the rest of history
1: then. <laughs> yes, and uh, Serena has a cancer in remission.
2: Yeah, it's been three years now.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we wish you all the best with that. That's that's a terrible thing to have to deal with. Uh, Jaku, I like the way that on your website, which is com, you uh, talk about the vision behind Nature's Voice, this uh, video program you're putting together, two of you are putting together. And you say, you write that my goal is making people realize how essential it is for everyone to be environmentally responsible and to change a common mindset of I have to make a difference to I want to make a difference. So did growing up in South Africa have something to do with your passion for wildlife and healthy environments?
3: Absolutely, Rob. Um, growing up in South Africa is a, is, is a unique business on its own. Uh, not only did I grow up in South Africa, I also grew up on a farm out there. And uh, both of my mom, my mom and my, my uh, dad are both veterinarians. So my whole life I was introduced to all kinds of animals from wildlife, elephants, lions, birds, all kinds of birds to your normal dogs and cats. And, uh, yeah, just growing up on the farm, you were introduced to nature 24-7. Uh, I never grew up in a city. So, yeah, that absolutely has a huge huge, huge uh, part in my goal with, with nature's voice and how I want people to see nature and change that mindset of them. Yeah.
1: It is remarkable on your website to see all these photographs of you sitting down with wildlife like lemurs and big cats and stuff. And most of us can get those photographs of those animals by visiting the zoo, but we don't get to sit next to them the way you do. So perhaps it helped to have that your parents' line of work as veterinarians. Does that help you get so close to those animals?
3: It absolutely helps a lot. I'm very fortunate in that area. But Rob, you have to remember that that opportunities are absolutely out there for everybody. You just need to go and look for them. If, uh, right. if you don't, if you just sit back at home and you you know you you just think about all the things that you can do, it's never going to happen. Um, I'm a very proactive guy, and I go out there and I and I go and I do what I I I I, can, I can follow my dreams. I do what I what I have to do to, to reach what I want to reach. So yeah, it's 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 a little bit easier for me having grown up in South Africa and my mom and dad being vets, but uh, it's it's a possibility for anybody.
1: Very good point. I took my mom to she's 84, and I took her to Washington D.C. She's never been there, and we did all the political stuff. And I said, "We've got a few, we've got the morning left, the last day. You want to go to one of the Smithsonian museums because there are great museums in Washington." And she said, "No, I want to go to the zoo." And she was so right because that's where the live animals are, and for people to interact with live animals is so important, and not to be maybe maybe next time. Maybe next time
3: you can take out to South Africa to see the real deal.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a commute. But, um, <laughs> but, but also, if you want people to say, we had Rafi, who's a, a children's singer and philosopher, on this program earlier. And he was explaining that in order to get people to want to save, in his case, he wanted to save um, beluga whales that were getting poisoned and building their bodies. He said, in order for people to save those things, they have to love them first. And so by interacting with animals as you do, we all get to love those animals more and, therefore, want to save them more. And we want to save this earth not just for ourselves, not just for a clean environment, but for healthy, diverse wildlife and, and, and animals of all shapes and forms. Uh, it's, it's a really great program you're putting together there. Um, and your first one, oh, Serena, the programs are really great, and... Um, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how they, they come together, because clearly what is uh, most remarkable, there's a lot of videos out there um, of scientists talking with mayhem happening behind them and there's no connection, but Yaku is so passionate and just engaged and stuff. Um, how do you manage to catch him on film?
2: Well, he just truly lights up the camera itself. It's very easy to film him. I just have to give him a little direction here and there, like, okay, keep up the energy after a couple hours of doing it and long days. But, I mean, he's just pretty much naturally good and exciting when he loves it. So it just shows on camera.
1: Well, that's an important relationship. I've been (laughs) doing some soundtracks for something uh, for Stellwagen Bank, the National Marine Sanctuary. And it's one thing just to try to enliven the script talking into the, the, uh, microphone here. But, uh, when I have the editor come, she'll, you know, she'll stop me when I'm not enthusiastic enough and say, wait a second, you can do better than that and stuff. So it's important to have that, uh, give and take that, that you and Jocko must have there. Cause it's, it's really a fast-paced, good, um, clipping film. It isn't like some guy with by himself with his camera on a tripod and getting too long-winded. Not that Jaku <laughs> ever would, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work, and it's absolutely teamwork, a lot of teamwork. It's really impressive. So, your first expedition, uh, Jaku, was that you wanted to talk about plastic in the middle of the Pacific Gyre. Um, is there a reason why you picked that for the first video?
3: Uh, Rob, the 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 main my main the the subjects that I choose is usually because I I, I choose. Big obvious things that I feel this is the kind of stuff that people need to know about. Like, I don't expect yeah. people to know the, 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 the specific biodiversity that's getting uh, less in another country or something really unique and specific. This is a huge global problem that everybody's taking part of. So the, what the, the goal that I have with this web series is to, to bring these, this kind of problem to people so they at least know about it. And uh, that's why I chose the first one. I, I have a great passion for the oceans. Um, Living right, in our farms right next to the ocean, like a, a five-minute five-minute drive from the ocean. So always been lived close to it, and yeah, I just it, I, I read about about this problem and it just stunned me, and I, I just had to see it to myself. I almost didn't believe it. Um, so I chose that as my first topic. I think that was a good general topic that that just can kind of rock people to the core and see what we really are doing to our planet and the our luxury way of living is definitely taking its toll on our planet.
1: Good choice at the Ocean River Institute. You know, we're all talking about saving the oceans and rivers and watersheds, and a lot of a lot more people are calling in asking about plastic in the ocean than about saving the fish in the sea or something. Uh So, you know, it was a good good call there to, to go for the uh, Pacific Gyre. And it's it, it, how do the graphics happen? Do you guys sit down and do that, or you got some great graphics of showing the whole uh, Pacific world and and things rotating? And
3: yeah, I just it's I. I just downloaded the program and kind of started teaching myself how to uh, do it. It took a, it took a while, but, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't have the resources or money to pay people to do this kind of things. We kind of just try and do everything ourselves.
1: Well, it's fabulous because it's like, I'm saying fabulous a lot. This is a good video program. <laughs> <It's a laughs> Thank you. It's voice. Um, you know, because in the old days we used a chalkboard and we'd explain things. And so you don't need super fancy graphics to get it across. And the simpler you can make it, the more easy... The more approachable um, and understandable
3: it all is, so for people to you know, understand. And that, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going for. You'll even see on the on the the the, the, the writing I use on the graphics is also the chalk chalkboard font font to make it a little yeah. bit less like you know you you basically bring it down to it doesn't need to be that complicated. Absolutely, it can just be a, a simple thing that people need to understand. So,
1: Serena, what was it like being in Hawaii? Well,
3: it was my first time, so it was
2: exciting to go. That's for sure. Um, we only had a few days to get everything crammed in, so it was a little stressful to try and get to where we needed to go. The beach that we had to get to to film all the plastic, um, we really regretted not running a four by four in the long run because it took us almost a day to walk to where we needed to be. So oh my it was gosh. exciting, <laughs> yeah. But it you was are... uh it was really hot too, so we had to trug around with all of our stuff and. Why, we got there and we chopped it out, and luckily we got a good episode out of it.
1: So, you were on the big island, or? Yeah, the island? big
2: island of Kona. We drove around the whole island.
1: And how long does that take?
2: It took us four days.
1: It takes four days to drive around that <laughs> island. I know. Those of us on the East Coast and maybe in Los Angeles don't realize that these whole island states are kind of big properties to move around on. Yeah. And you said then you had to hike some distance to the beach? Yeah, the the, the, the the beach we were going to is called
3: Camilo Beach, but we actually tried to get to Camilo Beach. That's the actual point where all this plastic accumulates. Um, and when we tried, we got direction from a local, because we didn't have it on any map, and it doesn't show on any map. We just had word of mouth where the speech is. And then we was busy driving there. We didn't have a 4x4, and we started hitting really rough roads. And we took out... Insurance on our car for this reason, but we realized that we weren't going to make it. So we turned around and we just parked the car and we decided to try and get to this beach on foot. And it literally took us about a six hour hike in, in the, in the midday of the heat of that place, um, to get to, a to a beach. Six hour plastic.
1: hike. The middle of the Yeah.
3: Day to get just there. And uh, we didn't even, we didn't reach the beach, uh, Camilo beach, the actual big one. Next time I'll, I'll definitely do that. But, uh, the beaches that we did get to had more than enough plastic to prove my point and just to bring across how how destructive our, our living is.
1: Absolutely. No, it was totally effective. There you are standing with plastic coming up around your ankles and stuff, and um, and you weren't at Waikiki or some fancy beach. You were you're ground zero for the Pacific plastic chire. So that was well worth the walk. Um, I hope you guys are recovering okay after losing all that water and stuff.
3: Oh, no, we're yeah. no,
1: doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's good that you're fit and stuff. Uh, So, it's a fabulous film about Hawaii. And then, uh, uh, well, it must have been some months later, you packed your bags again and went to Alaska?
3: Yeah, Alaska happened about three weeks after that. We kind of crammed it in. Uh, We went to Alaska. Yeah, uh, we flew up there, and uh, we decided to head up there and uh, see what's going on with uh, our warming planet.
1: Yeah, it's so dramatic up in Alaska. That's a really smart place to go to show the effects of global warming, climate change, greenhouse gas buildup, sea level rise, all those things are happening there. Uh, So you got to see Mount Denali. We did, yeah, uh, Mount McKinley,
3: yeah. We went to Denali, saw Mount Mount McKinley. McKinley,
1: Yeah, Yeah, we we, we drove into the park right to
3: the end. uh, You have to take these buses, and when we got there, we actually didn't see Mount McKinley because it was was clouded over. I think only one out of ten or some kind of stat tourists actually get to see Mount McKinley because of the clouds. Like when we were driving down from Denali to Anchorage, we we,
1: we actually saw it uh, clear as day in the distance. So that's great. Well, that's a good sign because most people never see it. So congratulations, yeah. did catch a glimpse. Um, and how did it? Um, uh, let's see, um, uh, Jakku, you were. Um, what were you able to communicate? Or um, let's let's hear some of your message about. Alaska and global warming or something?
3: Well, the, the thing that, that gets me about that is just there's so many facts and figures that people throw on your face and uh, half of the people, or more than half, do, don't know what that means. Um, some people say we, the Earth is going to end tomorrow, and other people say there's no global warming at all, and um, we, there's somewhere, I'm pretty sure the real story is somewhere in the middle, and I wanted to go see that myself, and that's what I'm trying to portray with, this, with, that, with that episode where I'm going out there. We, we know what the facts speakers figures are, of, but let's go see. So we look, we're going there, we're kind of explaining why is global warming happening fast in Alaska and why is it happening at, at all? And then you say, well, you know, you can see from the glaciers melting and from the permafrost melting, you you're kind of uh, taking you there and showing you exactly like showing the face of global warming. At, at, uh, that was kind of the goal of the, of the whole episode, getting people right to ground zero for global warming and seeing, seeing how it happened.
1: Well, you do convey it very well, especially with some graphics. And did you actually see permafrost melting?
3: We were right there in the Nolly, in the Tundras, we were, uh, the whole, the whole Tundras basically made out of permafrost and the ground was of yeah. hot. When, when we were there, uh, we, uh, I tried to kind of see, you know, dig what you can, it's, it's solid ice. Um, but you know, you just have to, it's just a Google search way where, where, where you can see how, how it, it is affecting our, our, um, our tundra all around the world, not just in Alaska, but in Russia and, you know, all all over where where there's really cold places. It's it's, uh, really affecting all the permafrost.
1: That's right. The whole Arctic Circle is is, uh, warming up, and as it warms up, uh, the ground releases more methane, and and it's just a mess up there. Uh, I had the good fortune to go to Barrow, Alaska, and there um, the snowy owls are breeding out on the tundra where there's no trees, and because of the warming, the um, it's not snowing anymore. It's starting to rain in the summertime, and the little snowy owl chicks are not equipped to uh, repel the rain. They are the snow, but they were having trouble with hypothermia and getting too cold because the the rain could penetrate their feathers, whereas the uh, snow would not.
3: So that's
1: a, a uh, great example of
3: how unique an ecosystem is. And if, if, if just people think, well, okay, the temperature, the the globe, the global average has, has increased of 1.4 Fahrenheit or what have you. Like, I don't have the exact yeah. figures. But people don't think that's a lot because our fluctuate, our temperature fluctuates so much a day. But for these animals that's so unique and, and sensitive to this kind of climate change over a long period of time, it really
1: affects them. And that's what people don't
3: get, I feel like. That's right.
1: Yes, I'm talking with Jaku and Serena. And we'll be right back after this break.
4: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
4: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi,
1: we're back and we're talking with Serena and Chapu Hining. Uh, Serena, how can people learn more about your uh, video, uh, Nature's Voice?
2: Well, we have uh, our YouTube page. You can visit www.yakuvinnings.com, and it has everything on there from what he's doing um, to our YouTube videos. We also have a really cool Instagram where we take pictures of all the places that we go, and our Instagram is just uh, yaku underscore and so you can keep updated with that as well. And then of course YouTube where we have our, all of our b- videos posted.
1: Right. So if we, we start with, we can start with your webpage and go to those other places from there too, right? So what's the yeah. webpage?
2: On our webpage we have all the links to YouTube and to Instagram. And if you want to email Yaku personally, you can do that as well.
1: So it's Yaku Vinnings. And it's spelled J-A-O, J-A-C-O-V-I-E-N-I-N-G-S. Correct. com. hmm And uh, it's just phenomenal. And you can watch the videos. You can see Jocko stomping around Hawaii and um, covering Alaska and single bounds going about... Uh, Jocko, we were talking about Alaska before the break, and and you were saying how that just a, a slight change in temperature doesn't seem like a lot to people, but it can mean life or death for animals, such as the snowy owl, when what was snow turns into, uh, rain, and they're not set up to defend themselves against hypothermia from rain that they could from snow. Um and we talked a little bit about seeing uh, Mount McKinley or a glimpse of McKinley and, and uh, going to Denali. Um, I understand you went to Fairbanks? Yeah, we uh, we arrived in Fairbanks. Uh,
3: luckily, we had some friends living there, so we uh, bunked up with them, and we actually just we got there, went on a little canoe, canoe uh, dri- drive or uh, ride, <laughs> I feel like, uh, a paddle, I guess, and, uh, yeah, just being for the first five minutes... Uh, totally quiet, beautiful down the river, and you start seeing moose through the, uh, just trotting through the river, and it was, it was absolutely amazing. It was gorgeous.
1: Oh, that's great. So the river wasn't flowing too fast, and you were in a canoe, and they kind of meander up there, don't they? They kind I'll of bend can... around the rivers? Oh,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, They're all over the place. No, the river was definitely not going too fast. Uh, it, was, uh, it was good enough for me to really not just to go and paddle up and down it like we wish. It was, it was, it was amazing, yeah.
1: 3
2: uh, baby cubs, two moose as well. So I was kind of getting nervous when we started going a little close because they can charge. Yeah. Because he so wants we'll to get, get as close as possible always to everything. So <laughs> I have to make sure things can charge at us.
1: <laughs> you send Yaku, Yaku up front and he, he'll take the charge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he can say, my parents are vets. Back off. Yeah. <laughs>
3: To take care of you. Yeah,
1: yeah. he takes care. Here. Uh, 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 so uh, the forest so seems to be getting a lot. There's a lot of forest up in Fairbanks, and they seem to be having trouble with the global warming up there for the forest to survive.
3: Yeah, the um, the the as far as forest goes, we didn't actually cover that so much in our global uh, warming episode. We we couldn't uh, just sort of right. In. But it's a huge, huge problem as well just with global, global warming. You've got two problems, just uh, forest fires and uh, just destroying man, ample amounts of forest. And the second big problem they have right now is the spruce bark beetle that's, uh, because of the longer winters, uh, I'm sorry, the sh- shorter winters and the longer summers, the, the, these beetles get to uh, reproduce much faster or they don't die off in the winter. And uh, these little tiny little beetles are just devastating the forest of Alaska. It's also happening in Aspen. And uh, they've got a huge problem with that. And for that reason as well, the the dead trees also is is another big hazard for uh, for forest fires. So they've got a a pretty big problem with that over there in Alaska.
1: They certainly do. I mean, it's a double whammy, as you're saying, because first it's drier. So the the forest is drier during the fire season. And then, as you were saying, the spruce bud uh, beetles are, are attacking like never before because they can reproduce and because... Um, there's shorter winter so they can survive up there. So you're getting new pests coming in, and that's killing off wood that is then more prone to burning in fires. What a mess.
3: Absolutely, yeah. It's,
1: uh, it's, it's, we,
3: we, uh, I think it's more in the southern part of Alaska that that happened, so we didn't get to a chance to, to see any of that. Uh, but I definitely read up about it, and it's, I wish I could have covered that. that is, it's almost one of, that's one of the bigger things that's happening over there uh, regarding global warming.
1: It is. It's a complicated story to tell. And I'm glad you went for the very dramatic glacier in Seward because that's phenomenal, the way that guy's going backwards.
3: Yeah, it's absolutely. Just walking up there, you, 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 you pass these markers on the ground and it just shows you, and it starts from, yes, I think, the 1800s somewhere, and it's just amazing walking up and you just see the 1920, 1940, 1960, where, how this glacier retreated. And um, it's just yeah, it's crazy to see how where it was and where, where it is right now. It's, uh, it's it's amazing how how fast and how, how aggressively these glaciers are retreating.
1: Yeah, I was fortunate to go up there when I went to Barrow maybe uh, 2007 or 8 or something, and um, you know that Seward Glacier is huge. You can walk up to the face of it, and it's it's its own mountain. This glacier coming down the from above and uh, coming down the the slope of the saddle, I guess, and the ridge and stuff, and it's a very impressive piece of ice, and And I had the fortune of coming back two years later, and we were able to walk on all this scrub boulder stuff that was all under that mountain of ice just uh, two years before. Uh, It's just phenomenal the way, you know, and it was like a 100 feet back or something because there was quite a bit of real estate exposed, and uh, it's just hard to imagine that kind of block of ice retreating,
3: you know. It's, like it's, it's, it's crazy. You have to remember that the the ground that it's covering hasn't seen light for hundreds of thousands of years, you know. It's it's, it's oh, yeah. insane. So, it's
1: just rubble. Very
3: powerful message.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, you did capture well, Serena, on film, too. That was good to see that. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad. <laughs> uh, Serena, how did you like the... Um, how did the travels go
2: through alaska for you um the alaska travel wasn't as stressful um the only thing was when we were camping in denali we didn't quite prepare for the cold temperatures at night so it was a little toughing it out it was a little yes. hard but um yeah i mean filming wise we didn't have any crazy issues it's just uh it was like standing there after so long while swimming in the canoe and trying to not get attacked by moose and just those kind of fears throughout the the week but uh... yeah it wasn't as stressful as Hawaii but every every trip has a little adventure we always have to go through
1: (laughs) now what month were you in Alaska
2: (laughs) it was the same month so we did a lot in uh... it was in September so we crammed Hawaii and Alaska and it was my first time going to both so it was Amazing to experience all those things together and really get, like, an eye-opening experience on global warming and all the environmental issues going on.
1: Well, imagine you really got in the swing of things.
2: Yeah.
1: You really got, uh, mm-hmm. Is Jocko trying to say something? No, no, no. I'm i saying... I'm, I'm all good. Good. <laughs> good. Um, yeah, because... So you were, you, were, you were there pretty much when it's half daylight and half nighttime. So I can imagine it would get pretty cold. I've been up there more in the summertime where you have endless daylight. and stuff. So. Yeah,
3: we were, when we arrived there, I remember I, one of my bucket list uh, things are to see the northern lights. And they usually say you don't see that at that time of the year. And our very first night there, uh, we met up with our friends living in Fairbanks, and we went to their place, and we sat up pretty late uh, into the morning and just talking and catching up. And when, when we went to bed at 2 o'clock, I looked out of the window and I kind of saw these clouds outside, what I thought it was clouds. And I woke Serena up and she's like, I think that's the northern light. So I went outside and I actually got a photo of uh, this, this, just this long uh, big green light playing across the, the sky. So I got yes. the photo of seeing the northern lights on my first day in Alaska. So I was pretty lucky. Uh, so it, was, uh, it was amazing.
1: Yeah, there are a few people listening in who are envious of that. I've never seen them. My wife wants to travel to see them but I'm worried about, you know, traveling the distance and then not seeing them. So congratulations. That's yeah, that's
3: definitely struck, uh, locked it out of that one.
1: Well, it's a great program. Um, Thanks. So you've completed two programs. Um, I understand you're working on possibly a third or a series, which would be about South Africa, which means that you would be away for a while and therefore would cover a few topics. Yeah,
3: we, uh, we, we finished the first two episodes. We actually already went to South Africa um, and, and filmed all these episodes. The hard work now is just getting it, getting it out. Um, oh,
1: good.
3: Yeah, we, we, we've already covered all these episodes, and it's, it's done in four minutes on my hard drive, and I'm, I'm,
1: I'm working to,
3: to getting this out. The next one coming out episode is actually would be my first one in South Africa. Right.
1: And what will the first one be about?
3: The first one is I'm covering just biodiversity. It's, uh, it's kind of just leading into the big issues that I'm addressing in South Africa. So the, the topic of the first one, I decided of biodiversity, and I'm, and, and I'm explaining to people that uh, why is it important, that, why is it so many people, you and me and all the people that you interview, that's, that's protecting animals and plants, what, what drives them? And it's, uh, it's, I try to have people see how, how important it is to have a healthy biodiversity. And then a healthy biodiversity, of course, equals a healthy environment. And then I bring it back to people where a healthy environment is equals a healthy planet because we get some environmental services, if you want to call it that, almost life support from, from our Earth, like the trees would breathe a and give us clean oxygen and, you know, rains and glaciers and snow gives us fresh water. And because of plants and animals, you have fertile gro- ground and soil to, uh, to grow our crops in. So we get all these things from nature, but as soon as you take something out of the picture, if you, if you lower the biodiversity, you, you, you throw nature off course, you, you, you unbalance it, and in the end, ultimately, stuff starting, is going to start changing, and it's going to affect us. So either we're not going to be able to grow crops because we don't have any animals for, for, to, to produce the fertile, fertile ground, or the specific animal that's dying out uh, that usually gave us something won't be there anymore. So that's it's, it's kind of the topic that I'm covering in my first episode.
1: Well, it's a fascinating topic, biodiversity, especially for South Africa, given what diversity of wildlife you have down there is unparalleled, I understand. And yet, you know, we underestimate the importance of these connections between different animals that, as we were saying up in the forest of Alaska, just the introduction of the more of the spruce beetles meant that we were losing massive amounts of trees and forestry and that, in turn, will affect the air that we have to breathe. On, uh, I imagine that there are, you know, unappreciated connections in the African communities.
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. This, the one thing that I can immediately comes to mind is, and that's also one of the episodes, is, is rhino poaching. Um, I wouldn't say it's yeah. communities of Africa. South Africans are very, very proud in what is theirs, and they they, they reach like deep in that. So. Um, but we have a big problem in South Africa from outsource, uh, people from outside of the country that's poaching our rhinos and basically just exterminating them totally, like wiping them out. And we have a, we have a lot of organizations and people standing up for that. So that's one of the big things going on in South Africa right now as far as biodiversity and, and having uh, animals and taking something, uh, a really important animal out of the picture.
1: And why are rhinos an important animal to the ecology of the area? Uh, animals,
3: I mean, I, uh, rhinos is important in, in every aspect. They,
1: you know, it's just a circle of life. You
3: have animals. If you don't have animals, you don't have something eating them. Or, you know, if you have too much, if you don't have any rhinos in, uh, on the grasslands, then, you know, you, you don't have any, any food for, for, for bigger predators. If you don't have, if you have less yes. uh, rhinos, you have more predators, then they will eat more the deer. And if you have no deer, you know, there's no food for predators. And it's a whole circle of life that kind of just connects together. And uh, if you take one thing out, you, you affect 10 other, other things.
1: Yeah, I imagine the rhinos play an important role of punching trails through and, and making, you know, the area more habitable for some other animals. Absolutely. Everybody has got its own role that they have to play. I understand you're interested in big cats.
3: Yeah, we uh, that's uh, we, another episode we are covering. We um, checked in with an organization down there uh, called the Landmark Foundation, and uh, basically these guys are going through and uh, trying to protect leopards, uh, especially leopards and, and other big cats that being uh, caught or hunted, not hunted off, but caught in snares uh, because of farmers that's trying to uh, protect their sheep and, and, and that, kind, that kind of way. So not just leopards, though, but also we also address lions. Lions there's much less lions than they should be in the environment and uh, so we kind of just take this took this episode and address the big cat issue. What will happen when you take a lion out of the out of the environment and we kind of talk about that
1: Yes, and then you, you need to promote ways for people to live with the animals and still have sheep and so forth
3: absolutely I mean it's one of the biggest things of Africa is ecotourism. That's one of our biggest things that, that brings uh, money into our country, other than the gold and the diamonds we have. Um, we, that, that's a huge part of it. And the, people are start, starting to realize that the, the more this is happening, the, the less tourists want to come to South Africa. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big part of that. And, and, and how you live with these animals is, is, is huge. You, you know, you, you, we have to kind of be conscious about just building roads anywhere you want to or train rails or just urbanization anywhere you want because these kind of stuff – if you put a fence up, are starting to cut off elephants that their usual route to their water hole or their greeting ground, grounds or any, any kind of that, it cuts it off. So now they have to find a new, new route, you know, and it just, it's just, it, it, we really have to be careful about the way that we are basically building up this plan of ours.
1: Yes, I'm talking with Jaco Vinning, and he and Serena have a new uh, video program. Environmental website called Nature's Voice, and Yaku comes from South Africa. And uh, tell us more about elephants.
3: Oh, elephants! Um, I had the great opportunity of being really up close and personal with a few of these big guys, um, and uh, they are probably they. It's so serene to see, and they are standing right next to them. These guys are so gentle; they will just stand there and. Eat their grass, and I mean, I'm not talking about wild. And elephants, we got to a place where elephant sanctuary. We got to get real up close to them, and um, yeah, they. Yes. This, this is probably the most graceful animals I've ever seen in my life.
1: Wow, most graceful animals, and and you've been a few places, so I'm impressed.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: growing up with uh, parents that were veterinarians, did, did you have a favorite animal from the wildlife?
3: A favorite animal. Um... Growing up, I no, not not so much. Um, I think my dog was my favorite animal when I was really small. Good, good, um, good
1: answer. Good answer. Yeah. And whatever animal your parents were were healing and fixing and helping, which probably was probably your favorite animal same. at the time. And uh, and again, you know, you you totally appreciate biodiversity, and it's not a question of what's number one; it's that we want it all.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Um, biodiversity, yeah, it's absolutely. You, you, it's kind of just of a
3: I want attitude it needs to be changed to, uh, you know, what do I really have, what do I really need kind of thing. You know, it's, it's basically just luxury that we sacrificing for all planet.
1: We're very worried about global warming causing uh, ecosystems to essentially have to disassemble where animals will be forced to move and their food might move differently, and so we fear that we may see you know, an ecosystem, uh, an ecosystem go, you know, kind of come to pieces and then
3: reassemble in the, the new conditions. Yeah, um, as, far as, local, as far as that goes, it's especially with some some place that we uh, or place that we noticed that a lot was when we were hiking up in the um We the the guide was telling us about. Uh, I can't remember the animal, unfortunately, but it's a small mouse-like animal living up in the mountains, and they are uh, one of the species that's endangered. Um, and what basically happens is you have this mountain, and the mountain, mountain, the top of the mountain is the coldest place there is, and that's where they live. They live in the cold. So now you've got global warming, and the temperatures start rising, so the colder area just comes, uh, as the cold air moves up and up, you know, the cold area with, where these guys live just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and all they do is just move up with this, with this colder temperature to the top, the tip, to the tip of the mountain, and uh, somewhere sooner than later they're going to reach a tip, and there's not really anywhere else they can go, you know, so... That's a great example right. of just how global warming is changing your ecology and your in your in your environment.
1: Good example. We're gonna take a short break and be, at, be back after that.
4: The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. Voiceamerica.com.
0: Local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small localized or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
4: Talk, talk, talk.
0: Listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1 888 346 9141. Again, that's 1 346 9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Hi, we're talking with Jaku Vinning and Serena Vinning about their new video um, programs that you can catch online at uh, their website, which is J-A-C-O-V-I-E-N-I-N-G-S.com. Uh, we'll set up some links from the Ocean River Institute, oceanriver.org, as well. Uh, these are just wonderful six-minute videos about... Uh, how the Earth is suffering and what we can do about it to make a difference. The program is called again Nature's Voice. Uh, Serena, I hear that um, you guys are—are are you planning trips or there was something about Florida is that happened or coming up?
2: So we already finished everything for our first season. Everything's been filmed. We're just in the editing process, but um, we already went to. Uh, for the next season, season two, we're featuring Florida and the Everglades. So we went there, and we're going to do a story on that. And then next, we're hopefully trying to make it to Peru in the next couple, couple weeks, and so we can get a couple episodes out of that as well.
1: Cool. So um, tell us a little bit about life in the Everglades. I bet you didn't meet moose and canoes when you were in the Everglades.
2: The Everglades is fun. We actually – uh We went to down to the Keys, too, so we filmed a little bit about stuff going down to the Keys and then coming back up. So we really traveled all of Florida almost in four days. But it was exciting. We got to meet um, Greg Graziani. He's on the show um, Python Hunters for National Geographic. And he was gracious enough to welcome into uh, his home, and we got to touch live pythons and hold them, and it was an amazing experience. I would have never imagined holding a live rattlesnake, snake, but I got to do that as well. So it was definitely an adventure.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Jaku, why are pythons a problem? Um, actually, Rob, they're not.
3: They're not? Uh, okay.
1: That's, that's the whole process that, uh, the thing
3: we, that we addressed down there. So... I read up on this problem that they've got the, the 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 research I did said there were pythons were pests in the, in the Everglades and all that kind of thing. But uh, so we went and to see this because we to we want to bring the real story to people and um, met with Greg Greg with the the python hunter, and um, he told us that you know there, there's definitely pythons in the Everglades and um, and they there are a problem. They they people say they eat animals that that's really important to the Everglades and the ecology there. But he said that it's not nearly as a bigger problem as, as people think. He said, one thing interesting thing he did say is the, a, a bigger problem he thinks is, is feral cats. Just, uh, wild cats are running around and these guys catch and hunt for, for fun, you know? And people don't realize that as well because it's, it's health animals.
1: Right. The feral cats are house cats that have gone wild, I guess.
3: Yeah. So they, they, these guys are a big problem. But as far as pythons goes. Uh, I mean, these guys. If it's, it's someone catches a big python in the uh, in the Everglades, it's all over the news. But um, they they had a python co- um, contest or hunt, for, and the, this contest stretched over a whole month and was in the beginning beginning of the year around February. And uh, I, th- I feel there was thousands of hunters you could register to go and hunt these pythons, and there was prizes at the end. And with through all these thousands of hunters, and within a month, they only caught 68 pythons. So you um, wow. yeah, you can kind of see, through, yeah, you see that, and this, this, it's, it, you, you're hot out of luck to go find one. I asked Greg if he wants to take us, and he's like, "to to catch one python, because he did the whole show on the National Geographic. To catch one python, you need 92 man hours to catch one. So it's not just a wow. thing as you're walking and you and you get you see one. So uh, well, yeah, that's yeah, that's very was reassuring.
1: Was that it's very reassuring that uh, many many hunters going out could only find 68. Pythons in all of the Everglades, uh, with all the hype about, you know, how they're everywhere, that's good, shining a good light on the reality that there are probably very few pythons. All the pythons out there must have been released from captivity, right? Or that you think they're um,
3: Actually, that's what a lot of people think, that, uh, usually releasing pythons out of, of captivity, and this is Greg's words, uh, you know, they, they usually will get picked off by animals, and you need to have, you know, find, uh, uh, opposite sex, uh, snake before you can reproduce and all that, but the, the big thing was with uh, the hurricane that, that struck Florida, and uh, it struck one of these uh, that, uh, uh, one of those compounds that was holding a lot of these baby pythons, basically. for I don't know if it was for research or what it was for, and that slung all these thousands of, of baby pythons into the Everglades. Uh, they were all in this uh, small plastic containers, and that's the huge, uh, they feel like, epicenter of where and why this, this uh, investigation happened.
1: Aha. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, we turning the corner on Python's. We're tr- yeah, I don't. Turning I Turning the corner go at, on Python population problem. <laughs>
3: yeah, if, uh, I, I hope nobody's going to give me a call and ask me about that. Will be mad at me for saying this, but uh, I'll just direct him to Greg Rosiani.
1: <laughs> that's right. No, these are this, these are only the personal opinions of Vining. This is not uh, science here. <laughs> <is> not
3: yeah, <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, it's all me. <laughs> is,
1: yeah, no, I don't think. I think you're okay there. You're not the governor or something, so they won't wait. Not, not yet. And, uh, yeah, the keys are fascinating. All the mangrove swamp ecology down there.
3: Yeah, we, uh, that's the, the, the episode we covered down there was for mangroves and just for coral reefs. Uh, we, we checked in a little bit of that, and we just went to took, canoes took and just uh, uh, paddled through the, the mangroves. It was an amazing experience, and we actually saw a manatee and, and her baby right next to oh, us. Oh, excellent. In the river. Yeah, that, they were, they, it was amazing. I couldn't get the camera out fast enough. I did get some footage of it. Um, but I just, oh, I, I, I kind of missed my opportunity there, but, uh, I'll try and work it into the episode. I don't know how it will come out. I'm, I'm not there yet, but it was amazing just seeing these animals so big and graceful and just kind of floating underneath our canoe and, and out of sight. It was amazing.
1: That's phenomenal. We've been, the Ocean River Institute has been working on with the local, the people who live around Indian River Lagoon, which is, is 151 mile, long lagoon on the Atlantic Ocean side of Florida, uh, north of Palm Beach. And it's an enclosed body of water, so it gets very hot. It's very shallow and it's getting very hot uh, and it's getting a lot of sunlight. And unfortunately, a lot of nitrogen and nutrients from the land is causing the algae to bloom. And that the blooming algae has choked off the seagrass. So they've lost about 80% of the seagrass because of Seagrass inability to get light because of the algae in the water, the algae growing on the leaves. And the manatees, that's their preferred food in Indian River Lagoon is to eat the seagrass. And so they're being found dead, right. um, you know, with, with uh, algae in their mouths because they can't get the seagrass. And then we've had over 111 dolphins dead because they can't find enough food in the lagoon because the waters are so warm and and, and toxic, basically. So it's a terrible situation, and it all, all that it requires is for people to change their practices on the land, to modify their behaviors on the land, to, you know, lessen the carbon going into the atmosphere so we get a little less global warming. And mostly, don't let nitrogen from your lawn fertilizing or from any fertilizing or septic and sewage Get into the waterways.
3: Don't, don't put uh, fertilizer
1: you know, down in, in, in winter, right? Yes. Yeah, do not put your fertilizer down, uh, June 1st to September 30th in Florida because that's when the daylight's the longest and so the algae will grow the most and destroy the most. And yeah. in Florida, you can, you can fertilize it other times of the year. But if they use slow release nitrogen, um, oh. then, uh, and it comes like fifty percent slow release and one hundred percent slow release, then it will not release the nitrous oxide that 's the greenhouse gas that hurts the that drives global warming and if they use slow release nitrogen, it will not uh, the bacteria won 't mix with the nitrogen and create methylmercury, which is the mercury poisoning our seafood so yeah. it 's very important that uh, fertilizer companies make slow release nitrogen available to Consumers, And they just won't. So towns have to pass laws to acquire that, and still the big companies won't provide it. And so with these laws, now 85% of the local fertilizer is being locally produced in Florida because the big boys won't provide the 50% percent slow release nitrogen until more people do so. Um, Yeah, these are complicated issues. But I really appreciate, oh, let's quickly about Peru. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, yeah we're,
3: we, we, uh, we're just going to be uh, trying to get there in the next month, uh, covering deforestation, um, mining off gold, and how that's uh, ruining the environment. They also got a big plastic problem over there. So, um, yes. yeah, we're just going to travel around, drill through, and see what we can find, and see who we can talk to, and uh, see what we can find out.
1: And so, when does season two begin?
3: Uh, oh, uh, let, uh, let me finish season one first. Um,
1: yeah, it's a, it is a, it just means yeah. so
3: it just means that we're not doing all this. So we kind of, uh, outside of our full-time jobs, we kind of come home and we work on this full-time as well. So, yeah, we're trying to uh, just push out these last uh, five episodes for Season 1, and then I'll probably take a month or so break and then uh, getting stuff ready for Season 2.
1: Oh, I was confused. So Season 1, uh, we have to look forward to uh, films from South Africa,
3: Yep, South Africa um, and Hawaii, Alaska, that already happened. And then we've got a final episode that's uh, basically discovering uh, uh, the looking glass where I, I travel around America, I go to Ohio, and I travel to um, Yosemite and yeah, Los Angeles, and I just look at it. people talk about how our planet is changing, but in your immediate right now, you don't really see it. I mean, the sun is still shining, the birds are still chirping, so everything feels happy. But let's, look that's at, right. let's, take, a look, let's take a look over the last 400 years since people came to America. How did our forests, our air, our water change in that 400 years? How many animals went extinct in that 400 years? And that's what I'm doing in that episode. I'm going up to Ohio and I'm looking at the Cuyahoga River um, and how that was a a symbol of water pollution when it it burst into flames in, in 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 the 70s or 60s. And uh, yes, you know, go to Yosemite, yeah. yeah, go to Yosemite to the So that's the last episode, uh, the Looking Glass for for the first season, and then second season will be like Florida and Peru and wherever else we go right. next.
1: Well, that's great. I urge people to stay in touch, to watch for those soon to be released, you know, next films uh, that you guys are putting out, um, because you've got a lot of stuff in the can that's you know on its way. That's just really exciting. Uh, people can learn more at your website, right? Serena, yeah, how can people absolutely. learn more about your programs?
3: How can they learn more about my program? Uh, if you just go to my website, www.jacozings.com, my it's my website, my la- first name and last name. Um, you can go to YouTube and uh, yeah, just uh, go type in Nature's Voice and it will come right up.
1: Yeah, you just Google Nature's Voice, Nature apostrophe S Voice. And I think it'll come up. Um, yep. uh, did Serena have to leave?
2: No, she's no, still here. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, we're going to wrap up the program. Serena, thank you for taking this time to tell us a bit about um, your, your film work and the person behind the camera of Nature's Voice.
2: Yeah, it was a pleasure. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for having
1: us. And Jocko Vinning, it's been great talking to the man that we see in the films.
3: Rob, it's uh, it's amazing talk to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate
1: your time. Thank you both very much. And that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening.
0: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.